Well, ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be in the ministry. Specifically, I wanted to be in full-time music ministry. I remember as a young child spending hours at a time just dreaming about it. And so I started singing in groups and playing in bands at a a fairly young age. And then I started writing music and, and then recording music. And there was this great dream that I had that I was convinced was given to me by God. And it seemed good and right to me. And so I had these big ideas about that dream as a, as a kid. But then just like the video said, as I grew older, the inevitable risk and adventure that would come with pursuing that dream was slowly replaced with a, a growing inclination toward comfort and safety and security. And so I began to pursue a different path. And the further down that path I traveled, although I always tried to keep the dream in sight, the more successful that I was in business, the less likely it seemed to me that my dream of being in full-time music ministry would ever become a reality until one day, just before turning 40 years old during a time of personal devotions, which then turned into a time of personal reflection, I expressed to God that although I was very grateful for all that I had been blessed with materially, including uh, the success of our businesses and all that came along with that, I was quite unfulfilled at the same time because I knew that I had failed to pursue the dream, to see it all the way through. I'd, I'd given up on the dream that he gave me as a child and pursued a different path. And I had friends at the time who were in full-time music ministry who pursued that right out of college in their 20s. And here I was 20 years later, and it seemed to me that for me that ship had sailed. I mean, how, how irresponsible would it be at 40 to ditch my career and everything my wife and I had built to pursue some crazy childhood dream, right? We had three kids, two businesses, three homes, mortgages, employees, and lots of stuff that we were responsible for. And yet I still longed to see that dream realized in my life. And so I was expressing that very privately and very honestly in my time of prayer one night when it became very clear to me by that still small voice of the Holy Spirit within me that he had indeed placed that dream inside of me, and as long as I was still breathing, it wasn't too late to pursue that dream. And I'm telling you, as long as I live, I will never forget the sense of euphoria that I felt the moment I allowed myself to dream again. Many of you know the story, so I won't go through it in detail now other than to say that we ended up selling most of what we owned shutting down the businesses and moving over 4,000 miles away to Fairbanks, Alaska, of all places, where I had an opportunity to be in full-time music ministry with a church there for a few years. It was an opportunity to pursue the dream that had been there for so long, the dream that I thought was lost because I'd waited too long. But what's even more amazing than the fact that after so long I was now literally living my dream was the fact that almost immediately after making the decision to go for it, God began expanding the dream. He began opening up new opportunities to travel around Alaska, leading worship at different places for different events, which led to me also leading a men's ministry, which led to going back to college for a degree in biblical studies. And that led to going to seminary in England for a degree in theology, which led to us moving back home and starting a church. 
where I get to lead music and teach the word of God and pastor people who I am in love with every single day. Has it all been easy? Not by a long shot. Has it always been comfortable or secure? Not even close. We've taken some big risks along the way and we've taken some big hits in the process, but the sense of fulfillment and joy that we experience every day as we live out this dream that God has given us and continues to grow in us, by the way, it is literally inexpressible. I cannot articulate for you the overwhelming satisfaction of actually living out the dreams that God gave me so long ago. And I'm telling you, it makes me want that for every one of you. In fact, I ache sometimes for you to know that same fulfillment in your lives, the fulfillment that only comes when you pursue the dream that God has put inside of you. And so my assignment from God today is to tell you to stop playing it safe. Stop avoiding risk. Stop sacrificing your dreams on the altar of security because I'm telling you it's not worth it. Whatever gain you can squeeze out of pursuing the American dream for you pales in comparison to the satisfaction of actually living out God's dream for you. By the way, living out the dream that God has given you isn't even about how that makes you feel. As wonderful as that is, that's just a fringe benefit. Because once you begin to see God's purposes fulfilled in other people's lives because of the fact that you are now pursuing that dream that he put inside of you, that is truly indescribable. And that's the point. God has created you for something bigger than you. Which is precisely why living the American dream never truly satisfies anyone because the American dream is all about feeding ourselves. It's all about what I can do for me, what I can accumulate for me, what I can make others do for me. But God's dream for you is all about giving yourself away. It's about dying to yourself as you lay your life down for other people. And that's counterintuitive for our culture, but I'm telling you, it's actually the key to the peace and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that everyone is searching for, because it's the life that Jesus Christ modeled for us, and it is intimately tied with the dreams that he's placed within us. So just ask yourself, and be honest with yourself when you do, am I pursuing the dream that God has given me? Because no matter what your current status is, no matter what your income or position or influence or authority or respect or whatever your title is, whatever your popularity is, none of that will ever even come close to the life you'll experience when you begin to dream again, particularly when you begin to give yourself away to pursue that dream again. And I'll tell you, of all the great characters in Scripture, and there are many, I don't know of any other who is more qualified to teach us about pursuing our God-given dreams than Joseph. And so we're going to go on a journey together as we begin a new sermon series today, looking at the life and times of Joseph, a man who learned a thing or two about the risks and rewards of pursuing your dreams. And interestingly, in the beginning, Joseph thought that the dreams God had given him 
were all about him. And yet, as we'll see, although Joseph was used in amazing ways, of course, his dreams were actually far more about others than they were about him. Truly, it's, it's an epic story. It's the last of the great patriarchal narratives of the Old Testament, and it is the longest of all of them. And so we are going to embark on an extraordinary journey with this young man, Joseph, as he learns to pursue the dreams that God gave him down a path that is fraught with risk, full of uncertainty as his dreams become reality. So let's turn there together. Genesis chapter 37, and we'll begin reading it together with the first four verses. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billa and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And so he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. <clears throat> so the story is introduced as the generations of Jacob because in reality, these last 14 chapters or so of Genesis are as much the continuing story of Jacob and his family as they are the story of Joseph. And so at this point, Jacob and his family have been back in the land of Canaan for about a decade when Joseph is introduced as a young man of 17 years who brings a bad report about his brothers to their father, which is significant. So we're going to come back to that. But, but first it says that Israel, who's Jacob, by the way, uh, back in chapters 32 and 35, God renames Jacob Israel, although both names are used throughout the rest of the story. So Jacob here, or Israel, it says, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. All right, there's a long history of favoritism in Jacob's family. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. And most relevant to our story today, Jacob loved Rachel, Joseph's mother, more than he loved Leah, the mother of Joseph's brothers. So Jacob's favoritism of Rachel is now transferred to his 11th son, Joseph. And Joseph being the favorite is not only obvious to everyone, but both Jacob and Joseph exacerbate the, the disparity between him and his brothers by the things that they do, their ongoing actions, as we'll see. So Joseph's brothers already hate him for being the favorite. And yet Joseph does nothing to make relations better between them. In fact, he seems to be working overtime to make the situation worse. When verse 2 says that Joseph brought a bad report to their father, that phrase, bad report, in the original uh, text in the Hebrew is the word debah, which is literally translated as slander or defamation or actually an evil report. In fact, everywhere else that that word is used in Scripture, it describes a lie. A false report. So just to be clear, this was an innocent little Joseph trying to keep his brothers honest by telling their father about something they were doing wrong. This was an immature 17-year-old spoiled brat who was tired of the way his brothers treated him, so he cooks up a story to make them look bad to their father, knowing that dad would probably believe him because he was the favorite. 
They made his brothers hate him even more. And to make matters worse, Jacob, in response to his exceedingly strong feelings about Joseph, makes him this special and very highly conspicuous robe so that everyone would know just how exceptional Joseph truly was. In fact, we have ancient frescoes, uh, paintings from the city of Mari in northwestern Mesopotamia from this same time period, and they depict priests wearing robes that were made of these rectangular pieces of cloth of various colors, all sewn together into strips that were then wrapped seven or eight turns from the ankle up to the chest and draped over one shoulder. And the point was it was a clear sign to others as to their favored status as those who were set apart, these priests. And so Joseph the little brother who was already loved more than any of the others is telling lies about his brothers to make them look bad. And their father's response is to make him a robe just to be certain that everyone knows exactly how much more loved and favored than he was than anyone else. This was salt in a very deep wound for Joseph's brothers. And so in verses four and five and eight, Three separate times we're told that Joseph's brothers hated him, which is a very clear indication of the intensity of that hatred, which apparently uh, didn't seem to bother Joseph at all, as we'll see as we continue in the story. Let's read verses 5 through 11. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Surprising. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down, uh, to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So Joseph has some dreams, which we know now, of course, were given to him by God. Dreams that would eventually come to fruition and in their fulfillment bring great provision and healing and blessing to him and his family and the rest of God's people. But those same dreams, as true and right as they may have been, were highly inflammatory to the other people who were the subjects of those dreams, namely Joseph's brothers, of course, who were depicted in the dreams as bowing down to Joseph, the one person on the planet that they hated more than any other. In ancient times, dreams were widely accepted as a medium for uh, divine oracles. In fact, they, they took their dreams so seriously that they wrote volumes of instructional materials about their dreams. We have archaeologists' discoveries, uh, numerous discoveries from ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, countries of manuals from that time period for how to properly interpret your dreams. And they were very serious about their dreams. So it's not like today. Like if you went to your boss and said, hey, boss, I had a dream. Someday you are going to work for me. Right? Your boss would probably say, great, but today you work for me, so get back to work. And nobody cares about dreams much today, but in ancient times, dreams were taken very seriously as messages 
from God, which they often were. And of course, Joseph knew that because he wasn't stupid and he wasn't innocent either. It's clear throughout the rest of the story that Joseph was highly intelligent and we've already seen him conniving against his brothers, making up stories about them. So we know he's also highly manipulative at this point in his life. In other words, he knew exactly what he was doing when he bragged about his dreams to his brothers. And although I'm certain Joseph was hoping to get a reaction out of them when he shared these dreams, I am equally certain that he had no idea the severity of the reaction that was actually about to befall him. You see, Joseph made a lot of mistakes, and he was about to pay a heavy price for those mistakes, and we don't like to hear that. We don't like to think about Joseph in that light because in our culture, when we read stories, we like our good guys to be good and our bad guys to be bad. So I think it's easy when we read about Joseph to want to view him purely as the good guy and his brothers purely as the bad guys. But the truth is, Joseph was far from perfect. He made plenty of mistakes along the way. And yet, at the same time, we see elements of good in at least some of the brothers. Why? Because that's reality, isn't it? That's the real world that we live in. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that Christians are far from perfect. We make plenty of mistakes. And yet there are non-Christians all over this world who do some pretty amazing and pretty wonderful things every single day. That's reality. That's the world we live in, right? Good guys aren't always good and bad guys aren't always bad, which is exactly what we see here with Joseph and his brothers. No doubt, Joseph is God's man in this story without question. And yet he lied to his brothers, about his brothers, to his father. He bragged about his dreams to antagonize them. He wore his special robe every chance he got, especially when around the brothers, as we'll see in a moment, just to remind them that he was daddy's favorite. Right? Joseph wasn't exactly the poster child for prudence or discretion. He wasn't tactful at all. And so these mistakes were about to cost him dearly. And yet Joseph still had a dream that was given to him by God. And although he made many mistakes, none of those mistakes that he made or their consequences could render that dream invalid. Not one of Joseph's mistakes or the entirety of them combined could nullify his God-given dream. Why? Because the dream entirety of them combined could nullify his God-given dream. Why? Because the dream didn't come from Joseph. It came from God. Okay? Our mistakes cannot invalidate our God-given dreams. And yet I can't tell you how many people over the years have told me that it's too late for them to be able to pursue the dream that God had given them because they've made too many mistakes along the way. Baloney. It's as if our impotence could somehow overcome God's omnipotence. Are you kidding me? Who do we think we are? When we actually start believing that our mistakes can somehow nullify the dream that God put inside of us, we are giving ourselves far too much credit. Our inferiority cannot overcome his superiority. Our limitations cannot overcome his limitlessness, which means our mistakes cannot overcome his plan for our lives. 
no matter how bad we screw things up. And so if God has put a dream inside of you, I don't care how many times you've messed up or how big those mistakes have been. There is no expiration date on that dream until God calls you home from this earth. And so as long as you're breathing, listen to me, you can dream again. In fact, the moment you align your heart and your will with his heart and his will, you can pursue that dream because God is with you. And there is no amount of mistakes that can overcome his will for your life. Our mistakes cannot overcome our God-given dreams. They can't, which is a lesson that Joseph is about to learn. Let's keep reading verses 12 through 24. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams." But Reuben, when he heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So Jacob sends Joseph to go out and check on his brothers and their flock in order to bring back a report as to how everything was going. The distance between Hebron and Shechem was about 50 miles, and given the terrain, that would have been at least a five-day journey on foot. Shechem was in the hill country of Ephraim. But when Joseph gets to Shechem, he can't find his brothers, and so he's wandering around in these fields looking for them. And the Hebrew word there translated as wandering in verse 15 is the word ta'ah. It's generally used when someone is utterly lost, right, straying from the right path. And so Joseph, after walking alone for 50 miles in hard country, is a bit out of sorts. He's, he's aimlessly wandering around in the fields when an interesting interaction between him and this unknown man takes place. It says, a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. I think that's in Alabama, right? So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. What's so intriguing about this seemingly insignificant detail in the story is that the mystery and particularly the sequence and the wording of this interaction, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's very reminiscent of the earlier event when Jacob was alone and wrestled with a man who turned out to be God. It, it underscores the purpose and particularly the providence of God in our lives, that even when we are wandering around in life, lost, without a clue as to where to go or what to do next, God is always there to guide us on our way, even when the journey leads us through difficult places and into uncertain times, he's always there. 
In fact, in chapter 39, even when wrongly accused and thrown into prison, it is stated repeatedly in that chapter that God was with Joseph. And so after receiving some guidance, Joseph continues on to Dothan about 15 to 20 more miles from Shechem. And verse 18 says, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And of course, they knew it was Joseph, even when he was still far off. How did they know? It's because he's the only guy around who would be wandering around in the middle of nowhere wearing a multicolored, custom-made, priestly robe. Right? And that was all that it took. As soon as they saw him in the distance with that robe, it was the last straw. They had had all that they were going to take from this dreamer who had lied about them, taunted them, and flaunted his favored status one too many times. Joseph was walking into a trap, and he had no clue because his ego at this point was far stronger than any sense of prudence in dealing with his angry brothers. So they hatch a plot to be rid of him once and for all until Reuben, the oldest, steps in, uh, which, by the way, may not have been because uh, Reuben cared anything about Joseph. More likely, it was because he was trying to win his way back into his father's good graces as the firstborn. If you go back to... Uh, chapter 35, while Jacob was away, Reuben slept with one of his father's concubines, which was probably brought on by lust, but it also challenged his father's authority as the head of the household. And as we'll see later in chapter 49, uh, actually Jacob never forgot it. And as a result, Reuben never did regain his preeminence as the, the firstborn son. But whatever the motivation... Reuben intervenes on Joseph's behalf here, and so when he gets there, instead of killing him, they throw him into a dry pit. It's a, a cistern. The word pit in verse 24 is the Hebrew word bore. It was uh, used commonly to refer to these cisterns that were either hollowed out of limestone or dug deep down into the ground and lined with plaster. They were a common out in the fields where shepherds had their flocks because Israel's rainfall is basically confined to three or four months out of the year. And so these cisterns would collect that rainwater and make it available throughout the year for the shepherds. But it wasn't uncommon during the, this time of year when the story's taking place for many of those cisterns to be dry. And so his brothers hurl him down into one of these, these dry cisterns and to add insult to injury, just before they toss him down in the hole, they strip off his favored special robe that signifies his father's intense love for him. And I'll just tell you, I personally find this to be tremendously significant and symbolic, not only for Joseph, but for people today who assume because of the circumstances they find themselves in, that the father's love has been stripped away from them and their dreams, therefore, can no longer be achieved. But listen to me, our circumstances cannot invalidate our God-given dreams. I was at a point in my life where the idea of selling everything, homes and most of the stuff in those homes and cars and boats and tractors and RVs and motorcycles, shutting down businesses and selling equipment, and closing accounts, leaving schools and friends and family and career and paying customers, bank accounts, security, comfort to go into full-time vocational ministry for a minuscule amount of money, it just seemed utterly impossible to me. 
I was suffocating in my circumstances that I knew I was solely responsible for, but it felt like I'd gone so far down that other path that dreaming again for me was impossible. Little did we know that once we began to pursue that dream, not only would all of that that I just mentioned would be the case, but it would happen 4,000 miles away from home where it gets 60 degrees below zero in the winter and the sun doesn't come up, living inside of a 900-square-foot apartment with my wife and three kids that happened to be inside the church building where we worked. But we did it. Not because we're that brave or, or that smart or that stupid, depending on your perspective, but because God was with us every step of the way. You see, the key is to focus on the limitless possibilities that come with following Jesus Christ rather than the suffocating limitations that come with surrendering to your circumstances. When Joseph was in the bottom of that pit, his choices were to surrender to his circumstances or trust that God had a plan for Joseph's future beyond that pit, even though Joseph could not see any way out. He couldn't talk his way out of that pit. He couldn't climb his way out of that pit. He probably couldn't even imagine a way out of that pit. All that he could do was trust God and believe that the Lord was with him, even in the bottom of that hole that he was in. His circumstances had closed in around him so tightly that nothing in the world could have seemed further away from him in that moment than the father's love and the dream that he put inside of Joseph. His brothers just threw him into the bottom of an empty cistern. How would he ever be the ruler over anything, let alone his own brothers? Right? It's so easy for us. When our circumstances feel like a deep, dark hole that we're stuck in the bottom of and we can't see any way out, it's so easy to begin to question the dream, isn't it? Even to question his love for us when he seems so far away. But listen, that's when your metal gets tested. That's when you have to be able to trust God and even be willing to dream again in the midst of those circumstances that make the dream seem impossible. Because what Joseph could not see from the bottom of that pit was a, a group of Ishmaelites and Midianites, the most unlikely way out of his circumstances that happened to be just over the next hill, and they were headed his way. All that Joseph could see were these inescapable walls all around him in darkness, but his deliverance from those circumstances was on its way and they would not only be his ticket out of his current circumstance, but they would carry him one step closer toward the fulfillment of his dream. But look, there's, there's no way Joseph could see that in the moment, right? Even in the immediate days that followed, but he could trust that God was with him and that God could see what Joseph could not. As impossible as your circumstances may seem to you today, God can see what you cannot. God can see what's over the next hill, what's around the next corner. He knows what tomorrow holds, and he's not limited by our circumstances. That's why we can dream even when our circumstances seem inescapable, because God is bigger than our circumstances. So no matter what you're facing today, Listen, give yourself permission to dream again because the next step of your journey is on the way even if you can't see it from where you're standing. 
Let's finish our story for this morning. We'll read verse 25 to the end of the chapter. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels building gum, uh, bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listened to him. And then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify if this is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments and put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So after Reuben convinces them not to kill Joseph, but instead throw him into a dry cistern, Reuben leaves. We don't know where. While he's gone, some Midianite and Ishmaelite traders from the Sinai Peninsula are traveling south to sell their goods in Egypt. The Midianites, by the way, were descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah, which you can read about back in chapter 25. And the Ishmaelites were descendants of Abraham through Hagar. So these two groups of people were relatives. And the forebears of the Midianites and the Ishmaelites were half-brothers to one another and to Isaac, which means they were also uncles to Jacob, which means that these traveling traders were second or third cousins to Joseph and his brothers. They end up, they end up connecting out in the middle of the field to do some business. In fact, it wasn't uncommon at the time for related clans working in the same areas of the Arabian uh, desert regions to connect. And so they're on their way to Egypt and they come across Jacob's sons and his flocks out in the fields. And in Reuben's absence, Judah speaks up and suggests that they sell Joseph so they can at least make some money in the process of getting rid of him, which also, by the way, was not an un uh, entirely uncommon process at the time. We have Ugaritic text, Semitic text from the 14th century BC that, for example, describe a man in Syria who was sold by his partner to a passing caravan of Egyptians who stripped him of his goods and abandoned him. And so uh, I think we often think of shepherding as this rather passive and peaceful business, but in ancient times it could get rough, especially if you were having trouble with the people you worked with. You didn't want to like steal your buddy's blanket in the middle of the night when you're sleeping, right? He might sell you off to the traveling band of traders coming through. And so they sell Joseph to their cousins for 20 shekels of silver. Uh, we know from second century Mesopotamian text that that was a typical price to pay for a slave at that time period. It's about two years wages uh, for a common shepherd. And so they make this deal uh, for a good price with their cousins and Reuben returns 
and discovers that Joseph is gone and he's beside himself because now any hope that he may have had of regaining his father's favor, which, which he sees as directly tied to Joseph's fate, just got carted off to Egypt to be sold into slavery. So the great cover-up begins. The plot thickens. They kill a goat and they dip Joseph's robe in the blood, reminiscent of Jacob's own deception of his father using Esau's cloak and two goat skins back in chapter 27. And they take it to their father, who naturally assumes Joseph must have been attacked and killed by wild animals. Notice they didn't even have to lie to him. They just handed him the robe and said, identify, is this your son's? Jacob assumed the rest. And so no matter what anyone did after that, Jacob could not be consoled. He rent his clothes and put on sackcloth and declared, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. That was the proper name at the time for the afterlife. So Jacob was saying, I will mourn my son until the day I die. I cannot be consoled in this life. And then in the final verse, we find Joseph being sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, which is really a trailer. It's a short glimpse into the next installment of Joseph's story, which we'll get into actually in two weeks because the next chapter for, for next week focuses on Judah instead of Joseph. But in this last verse of chapter 37 is very important, not only because it is the preview into the next installment of Joseph's continuing story, but it also highlights the fact that there is no one in this world who can invalidate your God-given dreams. That doesn't mean people won't try. They will. When you begin to pursue the dreams that God put in you, people, even well-meaning people, sometimes even believers, they will push back against you. In fact, there never seems to be a shortage of people in this world who love to tell other people all of the reasons why they cannot do the things that they're called by God to do. When we began telling people that we were quitting our careers and selling everything and moving to Alaska to live inside of a church building to do ministry full time, there were people who were determined to convince me why that wasn't going to work. There were people who wanted to prevent us from doing that, and some of their arguments were compelling. We were taking, uh, as far as we could tell, a huge leap of faith significant risks into a whole new world of unknowns. But we were determined not to give up on that dream. When I was accepted into seminary and school in England, there were people that told me I was crazy. I could go to school here, traveling over there with all of the expense involved and time away was unnecessary and a waste of resources. And then when we moved back here to start a new church with no income, no jobs, no idea if anyone would ever come and join us on this journey. There were plenty of people trying to persuade me to take a job over here or to look for an existing church over there because there was no security in starting a new church, which is absolutely true. There were no guarantees, no promises for success. In fact, I'll tell you, there hasn't been one thing about starting a church that has been easy or predictable yet. But we were determined not to give up on the dream that God put inside of us. And the dream continues. This is just the beginning. And along the way, 
when we had no money, when there were 12 people and no income, when nobody even knew we were here, we learned that even though mistakes and circumstances and people would do their best to to kill the dream, we could rely on God to see it through because it was his dream before it was ours. He had all of this figured out long before we did. He put the dream inside of us. We didn't. You see, if God gives you a dream, then he intends to see it through no matter what anyone else says to try and stop you. Joseph's own brothers tried to kill his dream. The Midianites and Ishmaelites tried to kill his dream. His future employer, as we'll see in two weeks, tried to kill his dream, but Joseph refused to give up on the dream. And God saw it through to fulfillment. Okay, if, if God has given you a dream, he intends to see it through. Doesn't mean it will be easy. Doesn't mean it will happen quickly. Doesn't mean there won't be risk involved or plenty of struggles along the way and you will most certainly make mistakes. Yes, you will. Your circumstances may make pursuing that dream seem impossible at times and sometimes people will do their level best to kill that dream. But not only does God intend to see it through, he intends for you to see it through. Even with all of the mistakes, all of the difficult circumstances and people pushing back against you. And yet when I talk to people about their God-given dreams, it's not uncommon at all to hear them say things like, well, look, it's too late for me. I missed it. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see, God isn't making this up as we go along, depending on the mistakes that we make and how bad they are. He's not making uh, the dream optional. He's not taking it off of the table because of our difficult circumstances. He doesn't give us dreams that are dependent upon other people's opinions and his expectations for us don't change once we've built a comfortable life for ourselves with a good income and a seemingly risk-free future. No, if he has given you a dream, then he has created and called and equipped you to fulfill that dream. You may have changed your mind about being able to do that, but he hasn't. In fact, In fact, the only person on this good earth who can ever prevent you from fulfilling your God-given dreams is you. The biggest obstacle that we will ever face to realizing the dreams that God gives us is ourselves and our pursuit of comfort, safety, and security. Listen, whatever he's created and called and equipped you for, He intends you to see it through. In fact, as long as you're still breathing, it is not too late to pursue that dream, even if that means giving up some things. In fact, even if it means giving up a lot of things. So I'm here to tell you today to dream again. Even with all of the mistakes, it's time to dream again. Even though you may feel suffocated by your circumstances. You need to dream again. Even when other people tell you not to because you may be sacrificing your future, you just go ahead 
and dream again. Because no amount of comfort, safety, or security is worth giving up on your God-given dreams. So stop playing it safe. Stop avoiding risk. Stop sacrificing your dreams on the altar of security. It is time to dream again. Let's pray.